Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel. Hello, everyone. My name is Kalev Bendor. I am your host for today, and I'm joined by Mike and Benji. How are you both? Thank God, pretty good. Mike's nodding. Yeah, I'm good. I'm pretty good. Actually, was when you said, hi, I'm Kalev Bendor, I was thinking, Bendor, were you born with that name? This is not for a podcast. <laughs> okay, fair enough. But, the, the, but the, I want to have that side. The answer is the answer is no. I, I Hebraized it, Hebrew. just like many other many other famous Zionists, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Well, you're a famous Zionist. Well, not on the level of Ben Gurion or mm. uh, or Shertok Sharet or Mayer Myerson, etc., etc. Probably not the level below either. British... Maybe in uh, in the C or D level, but uh, something level. something to aim for. Anyway, C. On to, uh, on to more important things. Uh, today we are having an episode where we're, we're reflecting on how October the 7th changed, or not, as might be, our impressions of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and we are all educators in some way, and also to what extent, if at all, it needs to change how we educate about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and about the different narratives that, that comprise that. Benji, I know you've been thinking about this uh, quite a lot. Why don't Why don't you go first? Right. So I would say is my understanding of the the conflict and how I teach about it and write about it and research and, and etc. has always been a framing of there's conflicting narratives and there's two nations rooted right in the same territory. I've taught this endless amounts of times and I really believe it. Right. One group really wants is striving for um, security to have an independent nation state and at least part of its homeland, the majority of it. And this other group wants wants justice. And essentially each group, they don't want peace. One wants security, the Israelis and the Palestinians want justice. And they just disagree on the methodology. So Israelis at times have leaned into diplomacy, at other times have leaned into military means to essentially achieve their objectives, which we achieved since 1948. Independence war, we got independence. And the Palestinians have also rooted their political identities also in response to 1948, but it's not to secure an independent nation state. It's always been about to, to gain justice for this catastrophe, which ended up being called the Nakba, right, of losing homes and homelands in 1948. And most Palestinian political identity today is all in agreement. We need justice for the crimes of what happened in 48, and that has continued for the last 75 years. And they just disagree on the method, whether that's uh, folks that support a two-state solution, folks that support BDS, or folks that support... Uh, genocidal terrorism in the form of Hamas and, and other terror groups. And then October 7th, for me, I've been thinking, does it squash the way I understand the conflict between these two narratives of, of security and justice, or does it actually just solidify it? But it solidifies it in a way where actually there's no longer this different in methodologies that is a consensus within the societies. Right, and maybe it was before October seventh this way, but I was I had a conception, a conceptia about the conflict that was just false, which is most Israelis. I still agree, want independence for their independent Jewish nation state with some form of democratic governance, and I don't think any Israelis actually think that diplomacy will get us to achieve that perspective. And that small minority that maybe was there, I think. Of the, I think it just might be. We're, we have to do this military means. Diplomacy can support our military means. But at the end of the day, to secure independence is going to be military means. And what the events of October 7th 
made me think is, okay, well then are the Palestinians also in a consensus on methodology to most support violent means, some on a level of Hamas and genocidal violent means to achieve their objectives of justice. Now, as an educator, I have not been teaching the Palestinian narrative that way. And the recent polling that's came out and other actions in the streets of Gaza and the West Bank, you know, I mean, Palestinians that we've brought to speak to, to groups that I've led have not advocated for violence, although they've advocated for justice, they've advocated for a one-state solution and freeing Palestine, but more in the kind of uh, America version of it where everyone should have equal rights and things like that, but justice not through violence. But what if most, if, pol- if polling is correct, right? If most Palestinians do support, I know they all want, they want justice and the way to get it is through violence, is my way of understanding the conflict of these conflicting narratives. It's not about these two rooted groups of people tied to the land, one wanting justice and one wanting security, and the only way the conflict can be solved is each group essentially gets what they want. So how can Israelis have security and Palestinians can get justice? And I really thought there could be a way where eventually there will be some sort of compromise within each society that they can each kind of get what they want. Like I was very much into the Micha Goodman way of thinking about things. We can shrink the conflict. Maybe it doesn't end, but for the most part, the Israelis will get their security and Palestinians will get something of justice and maybe a new generation will come about. Well, they'll have a different idea of what justice looks like without having to be eliminationist towards the Jews. Now I'm completely convinced that that's not possible. It seems to be very zero sum. I think Palestinians want justice. I think Israelis want security. And I don't think those two things will ever happen at the same time. And so I'm having an internal struggle of, all right, what do I do about this? How do I think about this? How do I teach about it? How do I understand the other side here? And the understanding I'm coming to, I guess I'm not surprised, but uh, you know, I'm having kind of this moment of what I do, I have to maybe do it differently. Okay, thank you. So I have a question for you about what you mean when you say justice, but we're going we're gonna to leave it, going to park that for a moment. Mike, to what extent do you, do you think October the 7th has kind of changed your perspective, both as an Israeli and as a teacher in terms of the, the conflict? So here's where I differ from Benji in that it hasn't. It hasn't changed how I understood it and it hasn't changed really how I teach it. I think that people who feel it changing may have engaged in I would say two possible errors of judgment. One of them is diplomatic and one of, one of them is internal. The diplomatic is in order to explain this, I have to explain it in a way that people can hear it. So I'm going to frame it in a more attractive, less upsetting way. And that created, I think, a certain sense of distortion. And the other is just internally. How do I wrap my head around the idea that there are people who are genuinely eliminationist, that the majority of a population, you're talking about, Seven million Arabs live live in this in this area. Are you telling me the vast majority of them look at the world in this reductionist, hostile way? I think part of it comes from my reverence for Jabotinsky. Part of it, and it, it, you know, it was a chada'am. I am a classic early Zionist. I think it was a chada'am. Correct me if I'm wrong. Who said I would rather face a troubling truth than a comforting falsehood? In other words, I need to know what the truth is as accurately as possible, and then I'll have to deal with it. Well, what if that truth is terrifying? Okay. 
then I better face it. To me, and I was, you know, I don't know how many Harry Potter fans are left in the world anymore, but to me, one of the things I really resented about the book was it always, it did one of these uh, tell, don't show. It always told that Dumbledore was this like genius. And I always thought he was a moron. And to me, his greatest crime was he knew that Harry Potter as a character was going to have to face off with this evil super force, Voldemort. And he just didn't tell him because he didn't want to upset him. Let him have a good year, let the next year again. And he just procrastinated because it's really hard to tell people. As a person who used to teach in a high school, I, I used to teach Holocaust education. And I, I would watch as I actively destroyed the innocence of teenagers to show them the harrowing level of evil that exists that humans are capable of. And I think all humans are capable. Well, that's that's a shattering thing to do. And I remember one moment as an educator feeling, my God, the Nazis are still forcing us to do things. Like, I don't want to do this, but I have to because that's the world. And especially as Jews, we have to be aware that that's the world we live in. And so I've believed Westerners want to interpret this conflict in a way that is somewhat comforting to them. Not that they don't think it's terrible and that it's ongoing is troubling, but it has to be normally comprehensible to me. And a religious, an evil, fundamentalist religious death cult doesn't make sense to me. I mean, that can't really be what it's about. It's got to be about land. It's got to be at a sense of injustice that we should have had a state and now we don't. From a Western perspective. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why, why would people go onto a bus with a suicide vest and explode? So part of it is, well, they must be under such horrible oppression. What would it take to get me to do that? My gosh, their lives must be horrible. Well, guess what? Their lives are problematic. I'm not saying that to be an Arab who lives in the West Bank, everything's groovy. I mean, there's wealthy people, there's middle-class people, there's poor people, there's pizza huts and coffee shops and movie theaters and malls, as there were in Gaza. And so on the level of suffering that goes on in the world, I would not want to be a West Bank Palestinian without complete freedom of movement and restrictions like that. It is not the worst human suffering on earth, but there is an apocalyptic... They know... Most religious Palestinians know for a fact that Israel will disappear. And it's just a question of when. 10 years, 20 years. It has been prophesied that the Jews will reclaim areas in the Arab world and they will push the Jew back. And so whatever they do is just to make, you know, why did Hamas do that? Didn't they know what the Israelis would do back? Right. If you understand Hamas, then you understand. Of course they knew what these were. That's part of the plan. And But how could they think they could destroy the Jewish state? Well, because that's what Allah does. You have to show your faith in God, and God will help the mission fulfill itself. You don't have to have a strategic, this-worldly plan for success, because you're on a religious mission from God. And that's his part. My part is to kill Jews and call home and tell Dad I did a great job. And God's part is to help that overthrow the entire Jewish state. So I I have always taught, and I myself have faced the difficulty, which is that Palestinian culture as it is today, is we cannot reconcile coexistence with them. And I have always believed, as Zev Jabotinsky wrote over a hundred years ago, when most Zionists didn't think we'd have a conflict with Arabs, Zev Jabotinsky wrote in his famous essay in 1913, The Iron Wall. 23. 23? Yeah. Oh, I thought it was 1913. He said, when they, they don't understand statehood yet, but they will. And when they do, they're going to push back. And they will not give up on that push to eliminate us until they are absolutely convinced that it's impossible. Now, that's hard to do. 
That's hard to do when you have a fundamentalist religious culture that believes that their success is inevitable. And so it's it's harder than even he thought it, it would be. I think what's really interesting in what you said about the Iron Wall, and you talked about 7 million Arabs between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, and what came out to the news recently is Israel had put 25, I think, Israeli Arab women on the list to be released. And I think all of them, if not all of them, are like, no, we'd rather go to trial. I don't want to be released because Hamas is yeah. like advocating for me. And I don't want to have that stench on Well, me. not only that, but we want to have our day in court to prove that we We're, are innocent and right. shouldn't have been arrested as Israeli citizens. Right. As in, what that shows to me is another proof that I think maybe the Iron Wall... I don't know if it, this, it worked or it didn't work, but the integrationist inertia that's happening in Arab society in the state of Israel is not that, um, you know, right, Mansour Abbas is a Zionist per se, and those that support his way are, are essentially Zionists, but no, no, no. They're culturally in a very different place. And Hamas and Fatah call them 48 Palestinians. They say, you're a culture that was willing to collaborate and live and let live with Israelis, and so you are lesser than. In other words, I think an honest understanding of Palestinian culture, which I haven't completed, it's an ongoing mission in life to understand the different culture, but to engage in it forthrightly, to understand that Israeli, many Israel, not all, many if not most Israeli Arabs have done that kind of conceptual reconciliation, that Abraham Accordish sort of, mm -hmm. no, they're here, we have to live with them. There's also 7 million Jews and they're not going anywhere. But that hasn't happened in the West Bank and it hasn't happened in Gaza. Right. Israeli power was Israeli able to power. eventually, maybe we have this new generation that is reconciling with Israeli power and, okay, let's figure out what's best for our communities and we're going to, we live in Israel and Israel's not going anywhere. The eliminationism, it seems within the majority of the Arab-Israeli voter is not there at this point. Correct. And I've taught my students, look, it wasn't there in Germany during World War II, it wasn't there in Japan in World War II, and many people... Uh, in the world of the Allies said, well, there's just something wrong with Germans and Japanese. You can't make them, you can't change their culture to the point that they'll be a productive culture. They're going to be warlike and destructive. And, you know, the Marshall Plan proved that to be wrong. Those cultures, when broken to the point that their evil eliminationist leadership brought so much pain and destruction upon them that they realized we're, we as a culture have to pick a new direction. And I'm afraid that's what we face with the Palestinians. I don't know how that will work. But the change has to come. There's nothing Israel can do to change Palestinian culture other than an iron wall. Their, the change for the future has to come from them. Agency here. Agency. It, that's, that needs to change. That's what, and then the respect of the agency. And I think the challenge in so many ways that we talk about the conflict and people from outside of Israel talk about the conflict, they just take away the agency yep. of the protagonists here, or especially of the, of the Palestinians. It's unbelievable. Oh, we'll give aid to Israel during this time of crisis, but we're going to have to be really firm about the two-state solution. Okay, Israel will continue pursuing the two-state solution. We've offered it and offered it and offered it and always turned down. Israel cannot affect a two-state solution unilaterally. And so all this, well, should we be conditioning aid on a two-state solution? Condition away. What do you want Israel to do? You, you haven't analyzed the other side of the equation, which is the Palestinians. Even pro-Israel people don't always give proper understanding and agency to the Palestinian side of the conflict. And that's, that's half the conflict. That's a violation of the basic Sun Tzu principle. If you don't understand both sides of the conflict, you cannot ultimately succeed. Sorry, that just it reminded me of something that someone wrote on social media, because, you know, the IDF always 
it announces like, you know, we, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then someone, you know, uh, the classic Sun Tzu principle of we're going to tell our enemy exactly what we plan to do in advance. What this reminds me a little bit of, and, and just recently I, I kind of took, retook uh, a very interesting book by Paul Berman called Terror and Liberalism off my shelf. It was written in 2003. It's a good 20 years ago. Obviously at a time of the Second Intifada, following the breakdown of the peace talks and 9-11. And the Iraq war hasn't quite, doesn't really talk about the, the Iraq war. But one of the things that he wrote about is how the kind of the liberal West understood or sought to understand suicide terrorism. And it, and it turns out that actually, similar to what Mike was saying, it felt the need to put some sort of Western rational perspective on it because it can't be that someone would just strap a suicide belt full of explosives to themselves, get on a bus and blow themselves up. Someone who does that must be severely oppressed. It can't be that a person, even if even if they're a, even if they're a millionaire, would 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 seek to fly planes into the World Trade Center unless something really terrible was going on because. What the Western liberal mind, and I don't want to kind of generalize too much, finds it difficult to face is the idea that evil exists. And I just want to read just a very short bit because I think, you know, it's written- Because bragging he can read. We get it. You're literate. I can wow. read good. I've actually gone over this a few times okay, beforehand okay, to make fair. sure yeah. that it's going to be relatively yeah. eloquent. So, so he talks about the kind of the, the big demonstrations on behalf of- Palestinians in the West. And he says, it was an unwillingness, sometimes an outright refusal to accept that from time to time, mass political movements do get drunk on the idea of slaughter. It was a belief that around the world, people are bound to behave in more or less reasonable ways in pursuit of normal and identifiable interests. It was a belief of the world is by and large a rational place. And this is not just a modern thing. He talks about how the French socialists end up um, supporting Hitler. He talks about how some people on the left end up making excuses for Stalin. Now, I'm not kibbutznikim supported Stalin. Some kibbutznikims, true. Not all kibbutznikim. And I think, both in terms of education, but also just in terms of thinking, how do people get around this idea that things that exist there, there is there is evil in the world. There are Khaled, mass. I'm arguing something further than what he's saying. I'm arguing that Hamas is perfectly rational. They're just working on a radically different value system than enlightened Western modern values. They're in a pre. They are. They are in a pre-modern Western culture. And, and, and they're acting the way most cultures and most societies on planet Earth have behaved for the vast majority of human civilization and its history. Right, and we, as Western liberal thinkers, are the aberration. And then we look at Hamas and Fatah, quite frankly, and say, either we say, well, they can't really mean those things. Or we say, what are they, crazy? No, they're normal. And we are normal. They are rational. We are rational. But we hold certain truths to be self-evident, that every human is created with certain inalienable rights, and among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They don't believe that. They, they're blissfully unaware of any such basic concepts. Yeah, I think Inat Wilf calls it uh, West-splaining. It's mm -hmm. West-splaining to ourselves and outside to others. It's West-splaining. Benji, I wanted to ask you, 
you talked about justice. Yeah. Does justice mean a Palestinian state in 22% of, in inverted commas, historic Palestine alongside a Jewish state of Israel? Or does justice mean from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free? Right. I always knew and understood and taught it that justice did not mean national liberation, right? It didn't mean a state, just based on if you, I don't know, understand a little bit of the history of the peace process here in the last century, or not the peace process, just the conflict. Palestinians are seem to be this only group, we can call them a nation, that have been offered sovereignty and at least part of their homeland and consistently rejected. Most groups, when offered freedom to control their own destiny and at least part of a place where they say they're from, they take it really quickly. And the Palestinians mm-hmm. Even if they're settling for less right. than their dream. Most, most groups compromise mm-hmm. because freedom is the most... Some state is imp- better than no state. If your goal I don't even is think a state. It's state. It's just yeah. freedom, mm-hmm. right? To be who you want to be. So... Justice was always about solving the what happened in 48, the displacement of losing homes and homelands. So could that justice somehow happen where the Jewish nation state of Israel still gets to exist while Palestinians can get justice for losing homes and homeland? I've always understood it differently, the concept of Palestinian justice. The injustice is Jews ruling an inch of historic Palestine. Right, so I mean, that's maybe, the injustice that needs to be corrected. I think I'm leaning there now versus yeah. homes and homeland because I is what Mike said is like we're looking for a nice way to like think about it and teach about it that makes sense for me, right? So it has to be okay. So each side is essentially rooted in the same event of '48. One side gets independence, wants to be left alone. Stop bothering me. Right. The other side, I mean, they start the war and lose it, right? So they lose homes and homeland, and they talk about it all the time. Well, we want. We want our homes back and we want our homeland back, right? So all the refugees, all their descendants, we need to all, because we just need our homes and we need our homeland back. So the question is, is it about the homeland back and all of it? Or is it about, no, 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 the guys who have my homeland, I actually don't care about my homeland. I care about the guys on my homeland and I want them away, right? So I always thought homeland first. And the question is, can we, can there be some sort of compromising on us, the outsiders to their perspectives that are on their supposed homeland? And maybe there's a way we can have security on part of our homeland. They'll have it on their homeland. Or once again, the kind of shrinking the conflict where you can't get away of these zero sums, but like, we'll just, we'll want our justice, but never really want to do much about it. And we'll have our security and okay. Now I'm, Palestinian justice seems to be eliminationist. I was, I always, maybe it was deep, like it's subconscious. Like when I'm talking about this, I think this, but I just don't want to say it because I want the people or myself maybe, and now I'm like, you know, getting all psychological here and shrinking myself perhaps, but no, as in like, the West Splainers. This, this is a safe space. <laughs> yeah. just, I want to be in a brave space. It's just the three of us here and Ben. <laughs> and, no one uh, else is going to. And, and yeah. our millions of listeners. <laughs> no, no, but the West Splaining of it, right? We all want to understand this. Is there? There's a way to understand this, and I knew this is unique. I know this is unique, but no, I think we have to be cognizant. And I and I, it's it's funny because I think so many listeners will be like Benji. It's like this was just so obvious, like. You're, you you say you're learned, you know this stuff, you teach about it, but it's like it, it was right in front of you the whole time. Or they'll say, what happened to you? You used to be such yeah. a nice, yeah. liberal... 
I'm leftist, and now you're I'm basically s- saying all Palestinians no, are... Uh, I'm still a liberal. I, I'm not, I mean, a liberal, not in a left-right sense, like in a... In believe a, in freedom and liberty and human yeah, rights. Yeah. And I didn't necessarily think that all peoples need to have that. But in a way, I am a liberal that is tolerance of illiberals. And I, even if the most Palestinian perspectives and narratives are rooted in what I would call some version of illiberalism, my liberalism... Uh, allows me to essentially share a space with illiberals. Well, that's the irony of the Orientalism approach that began in American academics in the 70s, of you can't understand us Arabs on Western terms. You have to understand us from within our own world. And so, you know, we started funding these Middle East studies with with Arab professors teaching about. And and ultimately what they did was they figured out a way to Westplain themselves in ways that sound, but what it's really doing is it's it's racist and dishonest to not listen to actual Arabs talking about what it is to be Arab and what they dream and think and hope and 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 how they live. I, I think there's this weird oxymoronic. Well, we have to treat the Arabs as Westerners in order to embrace them. No, that's obviously super silly. But I I, I just the one distinction is can we, who believe in a liberal world order, tolerate among us those that want an illiberal world order? And I think before October 7th, especially in other podcasts that we've had, maybe one we just recorded before this one, was essentially the conception in Israel is we can have very illiberal neighbors that want to eliminate us, and we can still kind of be in our la-la land of like, we can have a liberal democracy and people can live literally half a mile from genocidal terrorists and everything will be okay. And we know that's not possible and people won't be willing to live next to them. So in the same ways of understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, toleration of living in being in conflict with a society that seems to overwhelmingly support uh, illiberalism in a way that wants to eliminate me and, mm-hmm. and Jewish people, we have to just, that that's it. Like that, the, the conflict is not in a way between two nations rooted in the same place and conflict right over the same territory. I don't even know if it's a conflict between two nations anymore. It's a conflict essentially between two worldviews. Civilization and barbarism. That's the, that's where I'm at right now. Um, and I'm not saying that all Israelis are in support of civilization and all Palestinians are in support of barbarism. But if you look at the mainstreams and if you look at collective identity and how people talk, and I, I, I it's, it's not just that this conflict with Hamas is between civilization and barbarism. Perhaps the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in a way is not as local as we thought it was. So I, I believe that ultimately, the and even Arab peoples will ultimately embrace civilization. But I just want to give a... Bio, In their bio, own way. Yeah. Well, yeah, sure. Their own cultural idiom, but they won't be... They, they will turn away from eliminationism. Uh, I just want to give a quick biographical anecdote. Albert Einstein was, after World War I, a prominent pacifist that believed that all armies should be, he was part of the movement that said all military should be dismantled. There's a League of Nations now. Uh, all nations are going to go forth into the future, and we're going to, the, the, World War I was the war to end all wars. And as a famous public intellectual, he was often a spokesperson for this. With the rise of the Nazis, he joined the cause of, we have to be prepared to fight them. And we have to build up our militaries. And so other pacifist leaders are like, why did you abandon the movement? He said, I didn't abandon the movement. I still believe in pacifism. But these are Nazis. You have to, you have to listen to what they're saying and, and treat them as who they are and be able to listen. If they get, to, if they get their agenda, these are Nazis. You cannot pacifist. There's no p- pacific way to 
to defeat Nazism. And so I, I believe him that he didn't change his values. He just recognized, uh, you know, the, the Solomonic idea that there is, you know, uh, uh, there is a time for everything under the sun. There is a season, turn, turn, turn. Well, that's Pete Seeger. But, it's uh, the birds, not Solomon. But a time, there's a time for peace and there's a time for war. Well, I'm going to end on an optimistic note, mm-hmm. um, which relates to two things that have been said already. Uh, that are connected. One is one is the 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 Abraham Accords, and one is Israeli Arabs. And I think that two really significant things happened in May 2021 regarding Israeli Arabs or Palestinian citizens of Israel or, or 48 Palestinians. One were the the riots in mixed cities in Lod, in Ramallah, in Akko, Tiberias, etc. And one was Mansour Abbas joining the the coalition. And we subsequently saw in election number uh, five how that played out, that that Balad, which is a a far more reactionary Palestinian citizen of Israel party, did far better than people thought they would, which kind of pushes towards separatism. But Mansour Abbas's party actually did the best out of all of the Israeli Arab parties. And I think we have we have both of those things. And we have the the Hamas eliminationists, but we also have the Emiratis and the Bahrainis and potentially the Saudis who are moving in a very different And the majority of Israeli Arabs who since October seventh feel more patriotic yes, about Israel. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, if we, but then we've also got kind of probably the majority of the Egyptians and the Jordanians who we have a peace treaty with who are absolutely not on side at all. And so I think, you know, this is, we talk about a clash between barbarism and civilization, but there's also a clash within the Arab world of how to relate to this Jewish sovereign state in the Holy Land, but also in what for many hundreds of years was considered Arab land, Arab Muslim land in inverted commas. And that is a battle that that continues to to go. So, you know, on that optimistic note, I wanna I wanna bring the discussion to to uh, to an end. Um, I hope listeners found these kind of reflections uh, interesting. We're able to identify with different uh, strands in it. And Benji, Mike, thank you very much once Thanks, again. Thanks, Thanks, Benji. Bye bye. You've been listening to the Israel Conversation by the Massa Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home that our Massah fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel in all of its diversity. We connect our fellows to Jewish peoplehood, to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. The connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development. And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.